It is great to be with you this morning on this beautiful day. Uh, we are going to wrap up our sermon series, Firefall, on the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm, I, I reviewed a little bit over in the first service, but it took a while. So I'm not going to review. I will encourage you if you want to, if, if this is the first time you're joining us or haven't been with us in a while and you haven't been a part of the sermon series, you can always check out the previous sermons on our website alcfohio.org. So here's how I want to wrap up this sermon series this morning. I want to talk about what sort of person does the Holy Spirit produce when that person is continually being refilled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. The passage of Scripture I'm going to be preaching out of is Galatians 5, 13 through 25. So let me read it to you. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Alright, so, here's the big idea I want you to grab a hold of this morning with me. The life of the Holy Spirit-filled person is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Pretty simple, right? The life of the Holy Spirit-filled person is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in order for us to grab a hold of this big idea... We're going to answer four questions. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Why can only the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit? And what is your role in the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Okay? Four questions to help us grab a hold of that big idea. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Let's start there. So, love is the first mentioned. Our culture tends to define love in a variety of ways. One way that our culture defines love is love is to prefer something. This morning, I told Mary when I was making coffee, I love our new coffee maker. Our last one was like putting grounds in the coffee pot. Love. Especially when you get to that last cup of coffee and you got all those grounds in the bottom and you drink it and it's just gross, right? You guys, brother, 
sister-in-law, they are looking for a new coffee maker. They asked me what I thought of it. I said, I, you know, so far so good. Now I love it. So get it. It's a ninja. It's pretty sweet. I feel like I should do that when I say ninja. So I strongly prefer this coffee maker. I love it, I say, right? We do this with people. If John Doe's on your team and he's a great teammate, I love John Doe. He's great, right? Now, another definition our culture uses for love is to be kind to another person. This makes me think of the Beatles song, All the World Needs Is Love, right? That's how it goes. Or is that another song? All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So, that song was written at the height of the Vietnam War. And I think what John Lennon was trying to get across is that the world would be a better place if we just treated people with kindness and weren't warring against one another. Another way our culture tends to define love is strong romantic feeling. We talk about falling in love. I can't help myself from falling in love with you. I could sing that one too, right? It's just a strong romantic feeling for another person. Um, we talk about people falling in of love, in, in love, but we also talk about people falling out of love, don't we? The feelings are gone. As B.B. King said, the thrill is gone. <laughs> The strong romantic feelings have left the building, right? Now the word love in our passage, if you look at the Greek behind, this word that's translated love is defined this way, which is different than the way the world defines love. Check this out. Love means to serve a person for their good in intrinsic value, not for what the person brings you. Oh my goodness. Another way to put it is love is the commitment to the well-being of others without conditions. And yet still another way to put it is that love means to unconditionally seek the highest good of another. So John Lennon was right, wasn't he? All the world needs is love, but it's not the way, not the love the world uses. It's this kind of love that the world needs. Joy. Joy in the world is based on, it's a gladness based on what? Anybody can shout it out. Joy that's based on circumstances, good circumstances. It's a gladness based on good circumstances. That, that is worldly joy. What is biblical Christian joy? It is gladness based on the unchanging greatness and goodness of God and his work in the world. A little bit different. How about peace? The world defines peace as an absence of worry, fear, and anxiety. Um, it can mean that in the Bible, but the Bible, when it uses the word peace, most often is referring to a sense of contentment and wholeness as a result of being in a right relationship with God, with oneself, and with others. A little bit different. How about patience? So our translation that we read uses long-suffering. Other translations say patience. I think the world and the Bible, they're similar in their definitions of patience. Here's what patience is. It's an ability to face trouble without blowing up or lashing out. Here's another way to put it. Patience is graciousness and steadiness in the face of delayed gratification. How good is that definition? I love that definition. I love it. Strong preference. Like. Kindness. Kindness. 
How about kindness? There's been a renaissance of kindness in our public schools, hasn't there? This is the message being communicated in our middle schools and our high schools especially because they're often just cesspools of ostracism, bullying, um, cliques, you know, the, the whole gamut of nastiness, right? And so there's this message that be kind. And we define kindness as let's be considerate Let's be considerate toward another person. Let's, be, let, let's think about them and, and be gentle with them. That's, that's how I think our world defines kindness. Now, kindness, according to the Bible, again, if you look at that Greek word, it means something different. It's the ability to serve others practically in a way which makes you vulnerable. It is... Seeing somebody that has a need and then taking action to make sure that need is met, even if it requires some personal risk on your part. Mary loves to tell a story. <laughs> I'm just joking. But Mary, which I think she does. Um, but in a good way. <laughs> Look. Those are the ones where it's like, man, the filter did not work in the brain. Um, Anyway, she stuck up against the bully in high school for another kid. And so what Mary was doing is she was exhibiting kindness. She saw somebody being bullied. She felt compassion for their need. She took action to stop the bully. And guess what? Anytime you do that, there's risks that what? That bully might start bullying you, right? That's kindness. Goodness. The world's definition, the Bible def Bible's definition isn't that much difference. It is the deliberate preference of right to wrong. That's where the Bible, or the, the world kind of stops. But the Bible would add the firm and persistent resistance of all moral evil in the choosing and following of all moral good. If you look at the Greek word behind goodness, integrity is closely linked to it. Integrity is a person, if a person has integrity... They are good in all circumstances, in all situations. So they're not one way. They're not good in this group of people, but when they get with a different mix of people, they're not so good. No, they have integrity. They're not divided. They're a consistent whole. They are wholly good no matter where they find themselves. Faithfulness. Um, faithfulness, according to the world, according to the Bible, I think is similar as well. Faithfulness is remaining steadfast in one's commitment to another person or to one's promises to another person, even in the face of adversity. The faithful person, they're, to, they're dependable, they're true to their word, they're loyal, they are not fair-weather friends, they're all-weather friends, right? That's the faithful person. Gentleness. When we think of gentleness, I think we have a tendency to think of not being harsh or severe when we're relating to another person. The way that the, the Greek word is here be, behind gentleness, it is, has more to do with humility. A gentle person is a humble person. What is humility? Humility is not an overinflated ego of oneself, nor is it an underinflated ego of oneself. It is an accurate view of oneself. Because if you are overinflated in your view of yourself or underinflated, what do those both lead to? Self-absorption. 
they both lead to self-absorption. The humble person, since they don't see themselves as superior to the next person, they can be gentle with the next person, even in their failings, because they know that they have failed. The person that um, is, has this underinflated view of themselves, they're going to start to resent people in the world. And are they going to be gentle with other people? Probably not. They're going to be bitter and harsh in their treatment of others. Humility leads to gentleness. Self-control, the final one here. Uh, the world defines self-control as controlling one's emotions and desires. The Bible would add something to that definition. The Bible would, would define it as the ability to control one, one's emotions and desires in order to do God's will and not your own. Love that definition of self-control. There I go again. Really like it. Now, let's go to the second question. Uh, so that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Why can only the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit? Why can only the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit? Have you ever known a person that at all points in their life, in all circumstances, has been completely full of the fruit of the Spirit? The answer is no. We have never met a person like that, right? Why is this? Because these virtues are not natural to us. They just aren't. We have a natural, we're born with a natural predisposition to the opposite. If you don't believe me, go downstairs and spend the rest of this time with the toddlers downstairs. Do you ever have to teach a toddler to say, no, mine, throw a temper tantrum? No. This is what's natural to us. Um, but you do have to teach them to be kind, to be loving, to share, to be gentle. You have to teach them all those things. You see, when sin entered the world, it so affected God's good creation that it made the natural unnatural. You see, we were supposed to live and be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. That was what's natural to God's design. Sin made that so unnatural to us. And vice versa. It made the unnatural sin so natural to us, right? And we don't even have to look too far. Um, we, well, we don't even have to look at children to see this sad reality. We see it in adults, don't we? Often adults are way worse than the kids. I actually think the problem with this world is not kids, adults. We're the problem. Now, what do we get good at as adults? This is what we get good at. We get good at hiding our fear. We get good at hiding our worry. We get good at hiding our anger, our resentment, our selfishness, our impatience. We get good at act, being an actor. That's what we get good at. We're con artists. We are... Masters of deception, we are posers. That's what we get good at. Have we really changed? No. We just have become better at hiding it. Now, social media is a case in point. There's so much pretense, there's so much self-absorption, so much comparison and envy and competitiveness and lies that are peddled 
on social media. I was sitting at a fire with Mr. Dave back there just a couple nights ago, and he said, he's talking about a podcast he was listening to, and the person on the podcast said that social media, actually he said Facebook in particular, is Satan's urinal. Strong statement. But I think probably a lot of people would agree. Right? Now, is, is there anything wrong with Facebook? No. It's neutral. It's like an axe. You can use an axe for good or you can use it for ill. What's wrong with Facebook are the messed up people like you and me that use it. That's what's wrong. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, I know people who don't have the Holy Spirit that are patient and are faithful or they're loving or kind. And I would say, of course you do. You know why they're able to exhibit some aspects of the Holy Spirit, of the fruit of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit produces? It's because they were made in God's aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? However, I would say this. The person without the Holy Spirit is incapable of manifesting the fruit of the Spirit to the, ex to the extent that it becomes the sum total of their character. Look, let's face it, some people are just genetically wired with a mild temperament. They just are. I mean, I, I know some people that if they were in a house with you and the house was burning down and you told them, like, the house is on fire, they just sit there and be like, mm. <laughs> you know people like that. They're just so laid back, like, mm. here's the thing though, that's all genetic, that's all from the genetic wiring, that's not from the Holy Spirit, that's not Holy Spirit produced, and the way you know is because a person like that is often, you ask them what they're passionate about, same thing, mm. Mm. right? There's no joy in that person. Now we're getting to it, because here, if a person exhibit some aspect of the fruit of the Spirit apart from the Holy Spirit's work because of their genetic wiring or because they still have some capacity to reflect God, they will most certainly be deficient in other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. There are some people that are just naturally wired to be disciplined. Right? Some of you hate that person. <laughs> And is that the Holy Spirit producing self-control in them? No. They're just naturally wired to be disciplined and to be type A and to make things happen and get things done. And you know why it's, you can know how you can tell it's not the fruit of the Spirit? Because often that person has they're they're full of pride and arrogance because not everybody else is as self-controlled and disciplined as they are. Not all the fruit of the Spirit is there, not the full fruit. I think this is so good. What a surprise. Tim Keller. <laughs> a man. You know why it's so good? Because this is a man full of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so good. There is a reason. He will straight up tell you that. There is a reason that Paul deliberately uses the singular word fruit to describe a whole list of things that grow in a spirit-filled person. From this we learn a very important point for understanding and discerning the fruit of the Spirit. Check this out. The real fruit of the Spirit always grows together. They are one. That is, you don't get one part of the fruit of the Spirit growing without all the parts growing. 
This was an aha for me. In other words, if someone exhibits patience, but it's not accompanied by the other fruit of the Spirit, it's not from the Spirit. It could be genetic acquiring. It could be just like this learned skill that they've learned so that they can make it in the world. It can be, it can be different things. It's not from the Spirit. Here's another thing. If somebody is exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and it's not from the Spirit, it, may, it very well may be counterfeit fruit. Check this out. Counterfeit fruit is sin in disguise. Let's take love, for example. We define love this way. To serve a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what the person brings you. When I was taking time to just soak on this definition, you know what I thought is how little we actually love. Look, we serve people. There are even times when we fight for another person's highest good. But we do so because there's something in it for us. That's why we're doing it. We may be serving others so that we can feel better about ourselves. We may be serving others because we don't want to experience another person's displeasure. We may be serving others so that people will think more highly of us. We serve others so that we can build connections that will help us at some point in the future. We serve others so that we can get that promotion. We serve others so that God will bless us. We serve others so that they might serve us. We serve others because it's our job. And if we want an income still coming, we've got to do it. Our love is often so counterfeit and not real. Too often, let's take another fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. Too often our gentleness is mistaken for or our gentleness is actually cowardiceness. That's a word. Because we look at somebody who's gentle, always meek and mild, and, and how they handle you know people, but they're actually underneath. They're cowards, and the reason they're that way because they hate conflict and avoid it at all costs. Counterfeit fruit of gentleness. Let's take another fruit. How about that self-control one? We may look at a person that is so self-controlled in their diet and in their working out routine, but underneath that self-control is such an inflated ego that's driving all of that because they want to remain feeling superior to those other lesser people that don't eat well and work out. Counterfeit fruit. How often our manipulation is mistaken for kindness? We're being kind, we're flat. That's what, you know, flattering people is all about. What you're doing is you're manipulating that person with flattery. Oh, the counterfeit fruit that our lives produce. Counterfeit fruit is the fruit of the flesh that's mentioned in our passage, masquerading around as the fruit of the Spirit. We are all too often like wolves in sheep's clothing. So, how does the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit? We covered what is the fruit of the Spirit, why only the Holy Spirit can produce uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And thirdly here, how does the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? How does it actually happen? I think we would agree, most of us, maybe, maybe not all of us, that Jesus lived perfectly in the sense that he always, at all times, and all circumstances, exhibited the fruit of the Spirit, all of the fruit of the Spirit, simultaneously. 
Not once did he ever act out of character. All his words and actions came from a heart that was controlled by the Holy Spirit. So, how do we get this heart? How does this fruit become ours? First, number one, the Holy Spirit, what it does in a believer is it makes Jesus' character astoundingly beautiful, personal, and desirable to us. I remember when I first became a Christian and I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. I read it and I found it so beautiful, so applicable and personal to me, so desirable that it, it, the Holy Spirit was changing me in that time. Look, as we learn about Jesus and how he fought for people in this world, their highest good, including us, the Holy Spirit takes his love and makes it like so beautiful and so desirable and so personal you know, to us. As we see Jesus being faithful to redeeming the world, even under the most difficult circumstances, the Holy Spirit helps us to see Jesus' faithfulness and it becomes beautiful and personal and desirable to us. And it makes us want to be people that are true to our commitments that make even under adverse circumstances. And even it makes us want us, you know, to be a person that when we say yes, it's a yes. And when we say no, it's a no. As we gaze upon Jesus' humility that although he was God but gave up his privileges as God to come and rescue us, the Holy Spirit makes Jesus' humility beautiful, personal, and desirable. And we want to stoop low so that we can raise others up. When we gaze upon Jesus' self-control, that when he was in the garden and he was in intense agony, such intense agony that he was literally sweating drops of blood as he thought about him being crucified and bearing the whole weight of the sin of the world upon him. And he said, not my will, Father, but yours is done. Talk about self-control. And when we gaze upon his self-control, we, the Holy Spirit, makes it beautiful, personal, and desirable to us. Um, that's the first thing the Holy Spirit does to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Secondly, the Holy Spirit enables us to experience the fruit of the Spirit in Jesus in our present circumstances. So it's not enough just to gaze upon what Jesus has done. If, if the fruit of the Spirit is really going to take shape in our lives, we also need to be going through our life, experiencing our circumstances, all the while experiencing a relationship with Jesus who embodies the fruit of the Spirit. And as we see Him working through our lives, even the difficulty of it, guess what? Jesus becomes that more beautiful to us, that more personal to us, and that more desirable to us. And then thirdly, this is what the Holy Spirit does. As we're thinking about and gazing upon what Jesus has done, is doing in our lives, and what he will do in the future, the Holy Spirit causes the beauty of Jesus that he has made so personal and desirable to us, to our hearts, to flow out into our actions. I don't know how this happens. A lot of this is a mystery. But what, what I do know is that if you have a life where you're regularly gazing upon 
the beauty of Jesus and you're experiencing him in your trials, in your mountaintops and in your peaks and valleys, something happens. God does this. He, guess what? Jesus' love starts to become yours and your actions start to become more loving. And his peace starts to become yours and you're more peaceful feeling-wise, and in your right relationships with those around you and with yourself. Because most of the time, we're, we're, the, we're, we're the most not at peace when it comes to ourselves, our past guilt, our past shame, our flaws, our shortcomings. And then, as you continue to gaze upon Jesus and experience him in your circumstances, you find his faithfulness and his joy and all that stuff becomes yours. You see, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as he enables us to learn about, experience, and respond in obedience to Jesus' greatness and goodness in our lives. What role, then, do you have in being filled? Uh, well, I should say, what role do you have in the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then? If the Holy Spirit does it, what role do you have? Your role is simply to do what I just said. The only thing you need to do is repeatedly gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and experience his beauty in your present circumstances. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is what we do. This is why you come on Sunday mornings. You know what Sunday mornings helps you to do? Gaze on the beauty of Jesus. And as you do it, the Holy Spirit makes it more and more real to your heart over time. And guess what happens then? Your actions become more controlled by the Holy Spirit. May you this week gaze upon Jesus. Whatever spiritual practices help you to do that, engage in them. That's why Bible reading is so important. That's why prayer is so important. That's why Christian community and life groups is so important. That's why Sunday morning is so important. They all help us to gaze upon the glory of Jesus. And as we do, we are transformed more and more in his glorious image.